0: This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed, bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant <coughs> to a motherfucker like me, can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. <coughs> you know, Make some noise! Well, I'm here. I'm cute as shit. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, skip, skip, skip! If you don't chew Big Red, then... F- you. That's so horny. you naked in the shower with your clothes on. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Three cash, homie. three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W-Boss, W-Boss, W-Boss. Hello, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Can you dig it? Hello, everyone. I am Sam LaCrosse, per usual, your host of the show. I know you guys are probably hoping to, at least some of you were probably hoping to get rid of me by now, but I am not going anywhere because I really don't think anybody listens to this podcast enough to replace me with another host yet, or at all, rather. I I shouldn't even flatter myself that much, but um, uh, here we are again. It is another Sunday. It is March 7th, 2021. And, um, it's been a while since I recorded one of these things because usually I kind of do them back to back where I would be like, you know, I would record one that I wrote for a blog post and then I would record the next week's, the following after, because I'm working on another project in between the two podcasts. And now it's kind of, because how I used to do it, if you guys are kind of hip to the podcast, but not really that hip to the blog, I would just kind of do the scenario where I would write two blog posts um, uh, you know, not even two blog posts. I write a blog post every week and I write a new blog post every two weeks. And I actually kind of like this better because it's kind of giving me, I think a little bit more grip on my quality, but I don't know if you guys read the blog at all. I mean, again, don't read this blog.com podcast is on there. You can find me anywhere on there. So anyway, so it's been a while since I've recorded one of these things. And this one, I'm actually pretty happy with, you know, I it's, it's kind of, you know, difficult when you see you know something that you're writing or something that you're creating, and you think you know is this going to be garbage? Like, is anybody going to benefit from this? Is anything going to happen where you're going to be proud of this? And um, I actually do believe that this one, you know, I'm I'm pretty proud of this one. I mean, I, there's been a couple ones that you know inside of this whole situation where it's kind of been you know not great, and you know I haven't been really you know proud of these, this other thing, but I think this thing is really insightful because I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time, and it's gotten some traction and some other posts, but I wanted to kind of get to the core of it. So let's get started. So when they were first introduced to the world in 1946, a microwave oven cost upwards of $12,000 per. It was clunky, heavy as shit, and probably had a decent chance of giving your unborn children a birth defect or two from the radiation. When I moved to Boston and started from scratch in June 2020, I found a microwave that was neither of those three things on Amazon for $50. Two years earlier, in my junior year of college, my roommate and I were able to haggle a poor Target cashier who was overwhelmed with the tsunami of college kids nearly raiding her store before it was fashionable, fashionable to do so for $20. If we do the math, the cost to buy a microwave had decreased 240 and 600 times, respectively, depending on which kind of price and or negotiation tactics you use. So let's look at some other things. When the window air conditioner was mass-produced in 1932 by H.H. H. Schultz and J.Q. Sherman, they apparently like the abbreviated two letters and then the last name, it cost between $10,000 to $50,000, equivalent to $120,000 to $600,000 price range today. And that's only for one room. When I moved to Boston, I got one that could cool my whole apartment in 15 minutes for $300. That's a 402000 2000 time price decrease, respectively. In the year 1900, a little over 80% of the world lived in extreme poverty. In 2015, that number had declined to around 10%. From 1990 to 2018, the rate of violent crime in the United States had approximately been cut in half. In 1900, America's maternal mortality ratio, the number of deaths by women due to pregnancy-related causes per 100 live births, was 850. In 2014, that number was 14, a nearly 61-fold decrease. These are all good things. Tremendously good things. It's amazing that we can afford cheap cheap microwaves, have access to reasonable central air conditioning systems, that the vast majority of people in the world do not live in extreme poverty, that violent crime has been cut out at the knees, and that women don't die when they try to create new life. There are other trends that follow the similar pattern, nearly all of them due to human ingenuity, innovation, and a desire for better life for themselves and others. We have work to do in areas of our country, but it is almost no question that we are better off now than we were before to say otherwise would contradict science and data something that we should not do should the science and data be accurate which in all cases it is but unfortunately for us it's not all sunshine, sunshine and rainbows from 1999 to 2015 opioid related deaths have increased fivefold from 3 in 100,000 to 15 in 100,000 with heroin being the least likely compared to its synthetic you can buy over the counter in 1986 the united states spent 31.8 billion on mental health services In 2020, that number is $238.4 billion, but that that increase in spending has not worked. Teen female suicide rates are up 70% from 2001 to 2010, with 20% of all teenage girls having at least one major depressive episode. Teen male suicide rates, while suicides are thankfully increasing at a much less steep 25%, are around three times more likely to kill themselves. Around 6% are likely to have a depressive episode. Let's keep going. In the last 10 years, despite all of those previous innovations and many more, United States male life expectancy has actually gone down, particularly for white men. You can thank the opiates and suicide statistics for that. In 2018, only 54 percent of Americans trusted the police, and I'm assuming that number has slipped further since the publication of this graph that I'm citing from in 2018. In that same chart, only 38 percent trust organized religion, 36 percent trust the medical system, 30 percent trust banks, 25 percent trust big businesses, 22% 22% trust the criminal justice system, 20% trust the mainstream media, and only a measly 11% trust Congress. The United States hit a historic low in total fertility in 2018. And we're not even enjoying sex anymore, apparently. So these are two intr- incredibly polarizing demographics of data to take in. On one hand, things seem incredibly good. On the other, incredibly bad. So many things have gotten so much better, but so many things have gotten so much worse. And this is an incredibly paradoxical problem. People, myself very much included, have struggled with diagnosing it for a very long time. Why are we doing so many good things, but yet seemingly throwing all those good things away by doing other bad shit? So where I would suggest you start is to look at this problem by comparing it to another problem. The one that I think is the perfect comparison is the current discussion that's going on around the topic of masculinity. Masculinity has been under attack recently, and men are suffering because of it. It turns out when you label an entire identity group as toxic or oppressive, People tend to feel bad about themselves afterwards. Could you imagine if we did the same thing with Hispanic people or lesbians? I mean, the mob would riot. Yet no one wants to seem to talk about this problem out of curiosity. There are no good movies or television shows defending men anymore. Those days have passed with John Wayne movies in the 1980s. The closest we've probably seen to it is Cliff Booth and Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and even then he was only a supporting character, with the main male character being the opposite of what masculinity is. But... Brad Pitt, the actor who played Booth, who was the leading role in another movie that mailed the, was the leading role in another movie that nailed the masculinity conversation more than any I'd ever seen. It just happened to be more than 20 years ahead of its time. And that movie's Fight Club. The movie Fight Club is one of the most notorious films of the last quarter century. Everyone who's seen it has an opinion on it. It's almost impossible not to. It's either the bane of someone's existence or the reason for someone's faith in humanity. It happens to be the latter for me. don't know that would shock anybody or not, but that's neither here nor there. The film focuses on two men who form a fight club with other men. The narrator, who remains unnamed, a highly depressed and insomnia-ridden car recall specialist, is confined to the possessions of his life. Consumed by consumerism and materialistic possessions, he is lacking any direction or reason to enjoy his life. He meets Tyler Durden, Brad Pitt, the narrator is played by Edward Norton, by the way, a soap salesman on an airplane. Tyler is the exact opposite. He lives in a derelict house with holes in every wall, bathes in dirty water, and is completely free to do whatever he wants. They're the polar opposites of one another, and the narrator admires him for it. After an incident where his apartment is destroyed, the narrator asks to live with Tyler, where he begins to shed all of his worldly possessions to follow Tyler's path of a twisted Buddhist enlightenment experience. With the exception of Tyler, all of the men that come to the Fight Club have the same problem as the narrator. They're stuck. The world has passed them by. They feel like a lot of modern men feel, discarded, disjointed, unwanted. They feel like they have no purpose. They have no fucking idea how they're supposed to act and feel. And the reason is because men have never been in a position like this in the history of the human race. Human beings have existed for up to 7 million years by some accounts. Think back to the year of the earliest example I named earlier, 1900. That was 121 years ago. It seems like a long time. But if you look at it in the grand scope of human history, that 121 years is .000017% of the entire existence of the human race. It's an infinitesimally small number to consider. So the next logical question is why does it matter? Well, think of what's happened in the past 120 years. Not just all the things I named such as central air and microwaves, but things that are much, much bigger than that. We've developed vaccines. Our medical care has grown by leaps and bounds, no matter what you think of the healthcare system and how it operates now. We can go to the nearest wholesale club and get all the food we need for weeks at a time without having to put ourselves in the remote chance of danger. We haven't faced a serious threat by another country since 1945. Most of our backbreaking labor has been either automated or outsourced. In the past 121 years, the majority of the utility that men have traditionally relied on for that other 99.999987% of the existence of the human race has vanished. Why? Because we've progressed past it. Before 1900 and particularly before industrialization, the formula for a man's existence was simple and concrete. You provide, protect and procreate. You make babies, kill things to eat, kill anyone who tries to harm you and form a tribe of people to help you to survive. When you look at the grand timeline of the human experience, we're not as far removed from it as you think. But the script is flipped. We don't need to rabbit fuck the first healthy enough breeding age woman that comes into our periphery. We don't need to kill things. People don't want to kill us, at least mostly. We don't need to rely on many people to survive, at least in the context of modern civilization and all the benefit it provides. So when you've done anything anything one way for 99.999987, I'm sorry, I have to, if you guys have seen Inglorious Bastards before, another Tarantino film where Hitler slams the table and he yells 99999, I'm I'm sorry about that, I thought that was hilarious. But anyway, 99.x9% of existence, and then you suddenly have a change, it's natural to be afraid of it, or at least a little hesitant. Imagine if someone told you the way you flipped on a light switch, or type a single symbol on your keypad, or open a door was wrong, and you had to reinvent it. How terrifying would something as simple as that be? Our identities work the same way. When a shift this seismic happens, people don't want to do it. Or don't know what to do. Men are the same way. We've we've become emasculated by the societal shift. In the words of Tyler Durden in Fight Club. Man, I see in the Fight Club the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential, and I see it squandered. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no Great War, no Great Depression. Our war is a spiritual war. Our Great Depression is our lives. We've been raised on television to believe that we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't, and we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very pissed off, end quote. Back to the data. Our great war is a spiritual war, like Durden said. The same is true for masculinity, and the same is true for our society as a whole. We've never been this abundant. Even in a pandemic, we could have all we ever wanted. The world, as Tony Montana would say, is ours. Our ancestors would be salivating over how good we have it. At least from a material perspective. The thing our ancestors would not be salivating over is how fucked up a lot of our culture is from a meaningful standpoint. There were a lot more families back then and a lot more emphasis on the family. A lot more people went to religious institutions. A lot of people did bowling leagues or sewing clubs or hung out at local restaurants. Not many of them moved that far away from their parents. What we have on our hands is not a crisis of material. It is a crisis of meaning. We have all the shit we could ever want or need and much more. There's more wealth now than there has been in recorded human history. The government gives away money like mad and you don't have to be that skilled or smart to get a good job. But what about all the other stuff? The stuff that prevents us from overdosing on opiates and gets our young people to stop killing themselves at increased rates and trusting people again. It's a complicated issue, obviously. Like I said, we have millions of years of human history hardwiring us into thinking that the problems that they all face for those millions of years aren't relevant anymore. In some places they are, but as we've seen from the statistics, they're getting better. People are getting better educated, more healthy, and more wealthy than ever before. And again, these are good things. What is not good is how we as a society are adapting to this problem. If you want to cause a lot of strife, that is en- if you want to cause to a lot of the strife that has engulfed our world in the last couple of year- months, in the last year rather, Look no further than the genesis of this question. Our modern problems are more both of both individual and collective meaning combined with even more uncertainty ranging from everything from mass mandates to the Proud Boys have thrown our society into a tailspin. Humans need some sort of formula to survive. And when there is none, bad shit happens. We see this with our well-documented and founded concerns about men and the current state of masculinity, and we see it with our state of the world, but particularly with our young people. Young people, who have never lived outside of the better part of this matrix that we're absorbed in, are the most affected. There's a reason why most mental health concerns and other troubling signs adversely affect the young. It's because they don't know any better. They're caught in a societal quicksand. They don't think that shit works for them. They they have no idea what to do in order to get what was promised to them, like Durden said. A couple of weeks ago, I asked this question to a group of my friends. Granted, we were drunk and playing true American, but that's beside the point. Drunk words equal sober thoughts and all that. Not being interested in whether they've done coke or whether they had something subbed up their ass, I asked, questions, I asked them questions like this, and they all said the same thing. They were all underwhelmed. They were depressed, sad, frustrated. They, like so many others, are product of their environment, living the Great Depression that is their lives. And I'm the exact same way to a degree. I swipe on dating apps constantly, hoping to strike it big and find the girl in my dreams. When I go out with a nice girl, I'm constantly unimpressed because she doesn't fit what I've been molded to think the model is. I never text her afterwards, and she never texts me. I go back to swiping, knowing the same thing is going to happen. When I make a big achievement at work, I mostly feel nothing. It doesn't matter that much to me, mostly because I know I'm so lonely and sad that my achievements don't mean anything unless I have people to celebrate them with. I want to go out and meet people, but I don't want to be disappointed and let down, so I stay inside. Don't even get me started on my social anxiety. My Great Depression follows me everywhere. I can't rid myself of it. The transition has gotten to me, too. But the transition is happening whether we like it or not. Like most things, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There are growing pains that must be undertaken. Our spiritual war must be fought and won at all costs at the expense of our livelihoods. But first, we must get down to brass tacks. Part 1. Why everyone is unhappy. Nothing is ever as it seems. That much is clear. As with anything, nothing is as simple as, or as universal as people make it out to be. Abandon ideology, to quote the recently returned Jordan Peterson before the social justice warriors begin to slander him. That's the rule number six, the new rule number six, by the way. Ideologues and their disciples promote their ideology in order to promote a simplistic view of the world. They do this in order to control people. This is a pastor saying that if you don't do the everything I say, you're going to hell. David Koresh did this. This is a political leader saying that if not everyone is not treated equally, you're either oppressed or an oppressor. Joseph Stalin did this. This is a quote-unquote journalist saying that if you do not agree that America was founded on the ideals of bigotry and slavery rather than the ideals of liberty and sovereignty, that you're a bad person. Nicole Hannah-Jones does this. Ideology is both an infectious and a poisonous disease and should be dealt with carefully. But it turns out... Ideology can be a cultural sickness, too. A culture can get doped up on an an, an ideology, an idea so simplistic that we throw other things to the wayside. We can become so hyper-focused on something that we refuse to acknowledge that other things are happening concurrently that can undermine the whole fucking thing if we aren't careful. Eric Weinstein's theory of the big nap, an accurate one, if I had to say, is an example of this. For the example that defines our cultural malaise, our collective Great Depression, we turn to Mark Manson. Mark Manson, being a great cultural commentator and an excellent observer of the human condition, saw a similar trend. In his eyes, it was a problem of hope. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it. Everything is fucked, a book about hope. You should read it. He cited similar statistics. In so many places, things seem so good, but in others so bad. Perhaps his best example of this comes not from the book, but from his Mindfuck Monday newsletter he releases every week. You should read that as well. While 2020 was a flaming bag of shit on the doorstep of everyone's lives, one thing had a phenomenal year. Science. Africa was was declared free of polio. AI solved protein folding, once thought to be an impossible challenge that could yield an incredibly explosive growth in medical benefit and innovation. Solar power began being able to harness invisible light. An enzyme was developed that could break down plastic bottles in under an hour. The internet survived the biggest stress test in the history of the modern world. In some areas, there were proposed advanced climate change years that bought us 10 to 15 years of time. We created several viable vaccines in less than a year. Scientists successfully ran a nuclear fusion test where you make a motherfucking artificial sun to create power. All of these things, believe it or not, are good. But yet no one gave a single fuck. Additionally... In February, Bill Gates released his much-anticipated or maligned book on climate change titled How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. The book, much to the chagrin of many reading this, was actually quite good. We're doing better than we thought, at least that I thought. We don't have to throw away our fossil fuels and sign radical pieces of legislation and shoot our cows to Mars to avoid my future children being born in earthly hell, actually. We We just need a lot of innovation to scale up changes to our world. The consequences if we don't won't be terrible, but they won't be fun, either. But yet people still flip shit. Back to Mark Manson. and Everything is Fucked, Mark Manson called this problem phenomenon the Paradox of Progress. As things get better, we all get more and more dissatisfied with phenomenal things that happen. Look no further for our work on climate change and the other scientific fields, for example. Our attention spans get shorter. Look no further for social media than that. We take longer to mature. See the 52% of recent college grads living in their parents' basement. Even in a pandemic, those numbers are pitiful. But yet so many things have gotten better. We should be happy, right? Wrong. And here's why. As things get better, we open up other avenues for things to become worse. It is very good that we've eliminated things like the majority of world poverty, hunger, and most deadly disease from the world, with the exception of the coronavirus. In the United States, we have a particularly great. We don't have to struggle for food. We don't have to worry about a tiger ripping our face off. We don't have to worry about drinking shit-flavored water like a lot of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. But human beings have a remarkable quality for, to forget that problems do not go away. Some problems may, such as hunger, poverty, and tigers ripping off our faces. But the thing about being a human is that, like the Hydra, problems always replace other problems. And, often enough, when we take out a problem, many more will come to take its place. The two heads might be smaller than the one big head but they present a whole new scale instead of adversities that we need to contend with. If I learned anything from reading Bill Gates' book, it's just how difficult, immense, and multifaceted of a problem climate change is. It truly is absolutely enormous. It's hard to believe the man was able to articulate his thought in a book that could probably get, you, most can probably get through in a couple days. But let's imagine we solve climate change. Problem solved, right? No descending into earth hell or whatever thing, right? Sure, that's solved. But then a bunch of problems will take its place. How do we upkeep the massive amounts of infrastructure we've built up? How do we get rid of the old infrastructure we'll have to replace? How do we stabilize things like unilateral power grids? How do we ensure that our innovations and technologies that we develop can work past the breaking point that Gates and other climate scientists say we need to get to? Climate ideologues will say that this is an afterthought, that we don't need to think about these things. Net zero emissions by 2050 or you're a fascist or whatever. But the reality is we do need to think about these problems. They do involve the whole world, by the way. I wonder what those who preach stakeholder theory care about that. They probably don't. They're too caught up in their own ideology to do so. The problem with getting rid of a big problem is that no one sees the little problems lurking in the bottom of the ether. When all the big problems are gone, there's a fuck-ton of smaller ones ready to leap out and mini-kick you in the dick. And there are a lot more small problems than big problems. It's just harder to recognize them when you're starving. But when you can eat, you begin to see things differently. You begin to see all the things you've hidden in the fog. That's the rule number three, the new rule number three, by the way. You begin to see all the little horrors and monsters that have always been there, but you just couldn't acknowledge up to this point. You begin to see that your mind cannot be left alone after a problem goes away. You begin to see the Hydra multiply. We see singular things as an obstacle. We have to defeat the Nazis, or that will be bad. We will have to make sure the minorities are treated equally and fairly, or else our society will destabilize and collapse in on itself. We had to cross the Delaware, or we wouldn't have to advance in our fight to win an independence. See ball, get ball, to use a basketball analogy. When those problems are taken care of, we feel a great sense of accomplishment, as we should. But we see multiple things differently, as an ocean. Instead of seeing a singular point to aim at, we see multiple targets, multiple heads of the hydra, all snapping at us. When we see this multifaceted approach, it overwhelms us. When we become overwhelmed in the ocean of our problems, we begin to drown in them. We start to choke and suffocate at the sheer impossibility, the sheer impossibility of what faces us, and as it turns out, we don't like to drown in what we need, to, in when we know we need air to breathe. Even though the onslaught of new problems due to the paradox of progress is not a life-threatening scenario in most cases, it can shake us to our core if we allow it to penetrate us that deeply. And then something else begins to sink in: depression. This is what Mark Manson was talking about when he wrote his book about hope. A great part of the strive for the promise of progress is the innate hope that things can get better. This is the correct assumption to make. This is where all progress comes from. If there is nothing that we can believe we can get better we wouldn't make any attempts to improve it. We would just leave it as it is. This is why self-improvement is so big now in our culture. Everyone is looking for quote-unquote the edge or quote the way to get past people to be better. But the problem with this is the fact that we don't see where we're at before we look to where we think we want to go. We care so much about progress that we fail to realize how good everything already is. This is the fundamental problem with modern activists and hustle culture. People think that they have more ground to cover than they actually do. This is emotional overcompensation, and it's highly volatile, particularly when dealing with such emotionally charged subjects such as race. We only see problems because we were driven to improve by nature and not get eaten by things. This is evolutionary biology 101. We wanted things to get better because we wanted to survive. We had saber-toothed tigers and plants that could kill us if we ate them or prepared them the wrong way. We wanted to avoid both of these outcomes, so we had to improve our ways of living. Self-improvement is not just a cultural fad and movement. It's an innate part of human nature. Given the paradox of progress and our innate sense of improvement, this is not a shock that a lot of people feel overwhelmed. But why do they feel unhappy? Well, I think the final linchpin is one that I, I also believe to be our greatest strength as a culture. Our individual sovereignty. Since we are all unique as people, and that there is no one else that is like us, we are all emotionally overcompensating even more. Since we are all drowning in our sea of uniquely individual problems, we feel like no one can understand us, and that logic makes all the sense in the world. How could someone pretend like they know what you're going through when they aren't you? It's a valid criticism, and one that I've voiced to other people in my life repeatedly when they try to get, get all up in my shit. Most of the time I'm wrong, but there's always that lingering doubt left inside myself that is begging the universe to let me get a win so I can keep it to myself. And conversely, all too often, we isolate ourselves even further. Human beings, as proven by the beer virus, are meant to be social animals. We don't do well when isolated, particularly within the confines of our own mind. When we're left to our own vices for an extended period of time, we can incubate some not-so-healthy thoughts that can begin to tear us apart and eat us alive from the inside. This plays into us feeling bad about ourselves. Why do I have these problems? We ask. Why do I feel so bad? Why can no one relate to me? Why do I suck and everyone else seems so awesome? I wish I didn't feel this way. I wish that everyone could see me for me, accept me, and help me. That's what we say and think. What's worse is is what other people say, or at least what I think we say. In our isolation, in our search for emotional validation, we turn to our wonderful tools that the paradox of progress has given us. We check social media, only to be shredded by the machine-gun of tweets and Snapchat stories telling us how inadequate we are. We watch a show on Netflix that shows us how low we are on the totem pole. We peruse the internet to see successful YouTubers CRUSHING at life, while we're home, drowning in our own Great Depression eating cheez on tear-stained sheets that haven't been washed in over a month. This is why everyone is unhappy. The paradox of progress has unveiled the man behind the curtain and that man is manifested in the forms of thousands upon thousands of innumerable problems that the world was not prepared to let loose upon itself. This Pandora's box of problems has set the world, particularly the young and impressionable, on fire, cascading it down into the nether region due to our unpreparedness to deal with them. Our Great Depression is the result of several things, all of which have led to the malaise and cultural state that we're in now. It's not good, but it's far better than what happens one step below it. Part 2. But the opposite isn't happiness either. So what happens then? What is this quote-unquote one step below? For that answer, we go back to our friends in Fight Club. The men who form the Fight Club initially get their anger out in the world in a very healthy way for men to do, by fighting one another. In the modern times, all of that 99 plus percent of human history has stifled the necessary ability of men to release their aggression. These men simply release that aggression in a controlled manner. This is a good thing. It's why the overwhelming percentage of people in fight sports are men, even though the women that do those sports are usually tough as nails as well. It's simply aligned with the nature of the male genome. Aggression is a necessary component of the male condition, contrary to the ridiculous points being made today. The problem is, of course, when males release this on people who are innocent in the matter. It's one thing to fight someone in a jiu-jitsu tournament. It's a whole other thing to curb-stomp an old lady on her way out of a marshals. Without the necessary involvement of letting men blow off steam, bad things happen. A great example of this can be made by contrasting two professional sports: football and hockey. You will find no bigger fan of professional football than me, even though my team, the Browns, have blown major dick for the majority of my life. I'm not a big fan of hockey, considering I'm from Cleveland and didn't grow up with a professional franchise in my hometown. But I do respect the sp- but I do respect the sport. And the one thing that I wish about hockey that I wish th- that I love about hockey rather that I wish the NFL would adopt immediately is something that not a lot of people think of, but works tremendously well. They let the players fight one another. You see, when men are allowed to take a swing at one another, they get their aggression out in a healthy manner. They flail wildly at one another for about 30 seconds, the ref throws them into a penalty box, and it's over. No harm, no foul, at least not usually. However, the NFL is different. You aren't allowed to fight in the NFL, and it's a catastrophic mistake in my opinion. Hockey is the most dangerous sport I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, you have fucking have a bunch of large and hairy men skating around and into one another at ridiculously fast speeds with foot-long knives attached to their feet. Watch Blades of Glory if you want to know for certain how dangerous it is. But there's a strange thing that happens much more in professional sports that it doesn't in professional hockey. Or professional football, rather, it doesn't happen in professional hockey. Injuries. Every week in the NFL, you see a laundry list of injuries from team to team. Blown-out knee, Achilles tears, concussions, ribs, etc. But in a sport that, in my opinion, is much more dangerous, you never see them come as frequently. Because in football, when you just have just the amount of psychopaths that run into each other at high speeds but cannot take their aggression out, they have to take out other means to do so. They deliberately aim for ankles, for heads, for knees. That results in injuries. Anyone who is as big of a watcher of the sport as I am knows this to be true. It happens incredibly often if you know where to look. The same is true with the UFC. You almost never see an injury in the ring because there are almost no cheap shots. They're allowed to get their a- aggression out properly. And again, this is healthy. So back to our friends that formed the Fight Club. In the controlled environment, these men begin to feel free. In the words of the narrator, they began to not give a fuck about what people thought of them, what clothes they wore, or what the possess- or what things they possessed. Like the great Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. But soon they begin to lose that control. They begin to experience true freedom. True freedom is not what everyone thinks it is, particularly the conservative types like to paint American flags in the back of their asses during parades and spit dip into plastic bottles. True true freedom is not freedom at all. True freedom is chaos. When you're totally free, nothing is in order. When you don't give a fuck about anything, nothing matters to you. You don't give a shit what happens to you, what happens to anyone else, what happens in the world. You don't have any skin in the game everything just skates right off your back. You just cling to whatever you feel is important and lose every bit of empathy towards anything and everything else. This is, obviously, a dangerous state to be in. But it gets worse. Depression, when it is sustained for long periods of time, declays into something infinitely worse. Nihilism. Nihilism, or the lack of belief in anything as it's currently constituted, is the embodiment of the chaos of freedom within one's belief system and moral hierarchy. The only thing worse than being depressed, the only step further down the the totem pole, is being nihilistic. When you're depressed, you still have some empathy because you know what it's like to be hurt. When you become nihilistic, you no longer care about pain. It just becomes a part of who you are, and you tend not to give a shit about who you hurt, either. This is why the Fight Club model was unsustainable. If you don't control your aggression and try to improve your depression, you will inevitably succumb to nihilism. Some people see this, quote-unquote, don't-give-a-fuck attitude as the, opposition of, uh, the, uh, as the opposite of depression, and they would be correct. But they would be horrifically wrong to think it was better. It's much better to be depressed than it is to be nihilistic. Much better. When you're depressed, you care about feeling better. When you're nihilistic, you don't care about feeling anything. Without giving away any of the spoilers, the Fight Club eventually degrades into this. They don't attempt to improve upon their depression. Instead, they feed into it and it eventually leads to a whole lot of suffering that not a lot of people saw coming. It's a very slippery slope that I don't recommend going down. This is why Marxism doesn't work. Marxism is built off the back of nihilism and resentment. The institutions don't care about us, so why don't we rip the institutions down? This generally doesn't work out well. We've seen this with the, with the BLM and Capitol Hill riots. People get angry, they throw shit into and or storm buildings, they cause havoc, people get shot and die, that whole thing. But then what? These people not have a plan, of course, they didn't have a plan. They only gave into their depression about their lives and decided not to give a fuck. They wanted to experience true freedom, which is always a mistake. Chaos solves nothing. Nothing in the form of an absolute ever does. So much of the world we live in now is chaos disguised as justice, and that is not a sustainable way of living. Nihilism only gets you so far. It doesn't get you hope or happiness. Rather, it gets you the alternative destruction. Unfortunately, a lot of people, far more than I think we could have ever anticipated, are hard-charging down this path of destruction. We, not, we might not all be throwing Molotov's cocktails yet, but we certainly have thoughts about Molo- that the Molotov cocktail throwers have had. Why does everything seem unfair? Why do we not get justice? Why does no one care about me? Why are these corporations and the government and other systems of fo- power so much more favored than everyone else? This is why the Dark Knight's Joker was so scary. The Joker was the embodiment of nihilism. He didn't believe in anything, so he tried to burn it all down just because he could. There's a reason why Ultron repeatedly saying, I've got no strings, when he became self-aware in Avengers the Age of Ultron. For the first time, he was free to do whatever he wanted. And since he hated everything in the world, he decided to burn, burn it down too. He wanted the experience of having true freedom, and he almost got it. A lack of belief or hope in anything will lead to the inevitable ultimate depression, which inevitably leads to destructive behavior. As we slide from unhappiness into depression and ultimately into nihilism, it's not long after before we start to think about, and in some cases instances take, action against all who those we have feel that wronged us. Perhaps the most extreme but relevant example comes in the form of two young men named Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. The names may sound benign, but their final act of their great depression and nihilism will be forever embedded into the history of America. The Columbine Massacre. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had a variety of problems. They were both mentally unhealthy. They were not properly monitored and cared for by their parents and didn't have a lot of positive influences to reference in their day-to-day lives. But they were also bullied to a tremendous degree, and they were bullied constantly. Older students threw ketchup-doused tampons at Klebold in the hallway and called him a faggot. Harris had a cup of shit thrown on him while he, was at, in, while he was in a science lab. They were called retards. They were mocked for their body deformities. It eventually got so bad for the two boys that, sadly, all of those things combined into their Great Depression and slipped into nihilism. They began to hate everything. They began to get bitter and resentful towards everyone who they had felt had wronged them over the years. They began to plan. They studied and idolized Adolf Hitler. The massacre took place on Hitler's birthday for this reason. They became obsessed with Charles Darwin and his theory of natural selection. Harris wore the phrase on the back of his shirt when the massacre occurred. They also journaled frequently, conspiring into a horrific manifesto of thoughts of the two young men who were thrown over the edge of the societal cliff. They didn't just want to get even. They wanted to destroy everything. They wanted to burn it all to the ground. They didn't want anyone to be happy. They hated the world and everything in it. Perhaps the most defining example comes from a journal entry from Harris. Quote, It would be great if God removed all the vaccines and warning labels from everything in the world and let natural selection take its course. All the fat, ugly, retarded, crippled, dumbass, stupid fuckheads in the world would die. And oh fucking well if a few of the good guys die too. Maybe then the human race can actually be proud of itself. Then if we go upstairs and go to each classroom, we can, we can and will pick off fuckers at our will. If we, can still, if we can still, we will hijack some awesome car and drive off to the neighborhood of our choice and start torching houses with some Molotov cocktails. By that time, cops will be all over us and we will start to kill them too. We will use bombs, firebombs, and anything we fucking can to kill and damage as much as we fucking can. If it comes time where we are trapped with absolutely no way out, we eat crickets along with a ton of chlorine and some other deadly gas. So when we die, so will anyone comes, that comes close to us. End quote. The sad thing is, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold believed that they were doing a good thing when they lit up Columbine High School in one of the most notorious events of the last 25 years. It was just their way of equalizing the world of forcing the Great Depression upon everyone to make everyone feel their hurt, their pain, to make everyone hit bottom. But the thing that people in this state of mind fail to realize is destruction is not happiness. It is not righteous. It is narcissism. Simple narcissism that people then take to great extremes in order to make everyone else miserable so that, because they're too ashamed to fix themselves by doing what they know is the right thing. They selfishly appropriate their own problems onto the world with no regard for how they will be received. But it all starts from unhappiness, which leads to people feeling overwhelmed and sad. Our unhappiness, when it slips into nihilism, is the only state that's worse than that state. So the question for us is what do we do? Part 3. What do we do? So we now know where we stand. We are involved in a battle of belief and disbelief, hope and not hope. So what should we do? Well, I would hope that the ans- obvious answer would be to not do what we would give into depression and nihilism. Those clearly don't work for the data and the example cited above. But what is always clear is not always easy to follow, particularly when dealing with something as complex and multifaceted as an issue like this. Because in truth, I don't think there's any way we can avoid the two things above. At least in total, they are like any other emotion. Thing- They're like any other emotion. They come and go as our moods change, and we need to stop beating around the bush of trying to quote-unquote beat them. You can't beat your emotions. It's why you're able to breathe right now. Our body runs on them and is highly dependent on their existence as is in order to keep our ways of perceiving the world intact. It's where we derive value from. It's how we perceive the world. And it's also how we get the context of how to do the opposite of what they are. How are we to know what beats depression and nihilism if we don't know what depression and nihilism are? The answer is that you can't. You simply have to take them all in stride, do your best to learn from them, and do your best to combat them. Because happiness should not be the end goal of life. It should not. Happiness, like any emotion, is fleeting. Anything temporary, no matter how wonderful something like your happiness may be, is still temporary. It's impossible to derive long-term value from fleeting and temporary things. I believe a large reason why people are unhappy is because they put happiness at the center of their universe. It's a nice thought, and I would certainly be a good thing if we could make it consistent. But we can't. Emotions simply don't work that way. So in the end, we need something new and something more permanent that can take place of the unhappiness in order to combat our own unhappiness. As you've seen, the chase for something like this can be the problem that leads to its own undoing. A few things can help, but you first need to start getting out of your own way. The first thing that's always wise to remember, and that always helps me, is to remember the introduction to this post. Your life is good. You are living a better standpoint than every person that has ever come before you by every standpoint imaginable. There is much less war today. Less people are dying. More people can improve themselves. There's hardly any contagion, famine, or otherwise existential threat if you're able to read this blog post. But somehow we forget this all the time, and we forget it incredibly easily. The reason why that is is because the noise that it consumes our everyday lives. The endless vortex of sound that tells us that everything is not as good as it seems is what makes us feel that everything is not as good as it seems, when the data shows that, it's deniably that it is that it, undeniably that it is. This is a bizarre phenomenon, but again we live in a very bizarre time. Cutting out some of the noise is the only reliable way you can avoid your own personal Great Depression. It's so easy to become cynical and resentful in an area of our lives where so much of it is in so many places. But as we all know by now, those are exactly the two things that lead to chaos and destruction, so it would be wise to avoid them. Last summer I did a digital declutter where I purged myself of all social media and non-essential internet browsing for a month. While it certainly is an extreme thing to cut out that gigantic part of modern socialization for that long of a time, it did a phenomenal reset on my brain to where I could only focus on what was truly important to me throughout that time. After the declutter was over, I was able to get to quickly sort out who and what and who I didn't need in my life and get rid of them accordingly. The noise, the outside shit that you don't need fucking up your life, is meant to distract you. It's meant to pull your attention from what really matters at the core of who you are and pull in a direction that is most likely completely irrelevant to you. As we've known from our studies of essential diversification, we cannot afford to go a millimeter in a million directions and expect meaningful things to come out of it. Those two things are inherently opposites, and it would be a gigantic mistake to believe that they can be, both be achieved at once. You should know that your life is not perfect, and that things in our country and our world are not perfect. But you should also know that there is no better time to be alive than there is right now. Your ancestors would trade your life for theirs in a heartbeat if they could. Maybe this is the, all the self what, what all the self help cons call and call gratitude, whatever it is, it would be a good thing to practice more of it. Additionally, you must find ways to properly get out your emotions. Stifling them, as shown by the NFL and the other horrific incidents of our past, does us no good. You should not lose control and be a raging dick face about it, but you can't bottle everything up and pretend that everything is fine either. There must be a balance, and you must be have the self awareness to know the things know when things need to get out of your system. For example, if you're feeling sad, you should let that emotion run its course, but that doesn't mean you need to let it take a massive shit over your soul, either. You can help the sadness run its course by listening to sad music, or journaling about it, or calling a family member or friend. If you're angry, you can go to the gym and work out, or go to an environment of controlled violence like a martial arts training center or a shooting range, or flame a celebrity in an Instagram comment, although I would strongly suggest the first two alternatives over the last one. A big reason why I haven't spontaneously combusted by this point in my existence is because of this, my blog, and my podcast. Not many people think that spending 12 plus hours a week writing, editing, and talking to myself in my bedroom closet is quote-unquote fun. But not only do I think it's fun, I think it's incredibly necessary for my existence. Along with my workouts where I shred myself to pieces every morning for two hours, I would not be able to properly function if this part of my emotional regulation did not exist. That might sound dramatic, but when you look at your own life, I'm sure you'll find something similar. Maybe it's that period of time on your lunch break at work where you can, you can blue pill out of the scene for a while and listen to music. Maybe it's when you can get to your class where you can finally play a musical instrument. Maybe it's on the field or pitch where you can feel like you can isolate your anger and frustrations and problems for just those two hours and every, a day so that everything seems okay for the time being. Whatever it is, it is essential for every one of us to develop some sort of coping mechanism for this ever-morphing world that we find ourselves surrounded within. This can be very hard, particularly when you leave the academic setting to go into the workforce. In academia, you're on a constant treadmill to keep up with your schedule. There's always something to do. If you're not working, you're falling behind. But in the working world, many recently graduated students find themselves in more time than they know what to do with. In that instance, you must then pivot to fill that time with things that are constructive. Wasting time feeds into your Great Depression because human beings were meant to do things. When we aren't doing meaningful work, we feel it in our souls. When we aren't regulating our emotions, it's too easy for them to spin out of control. Taking time for those meaningful activities and habits for yourself is a great first step in taking back that control. Finally, there's a more unorthodox method that I would suggest, and it comes from my list of laundry list now that is growing, of my funny dad stories that is growing longer by the post. But one of my most distinct memories comes from when I was about 10 years old in the car. I think we were taking my brother to Taekwondo practice or something and we were checking out on a Saturday morning in a minivan. It was snowing out, and my dad was in a mood about something. My mom had control of the radio, and she put on a station that was playing the then-Smash hit Waiting on the World to Change by John Mayer. My mom, a lover of all things happy and positive, was enjoying the song. My dad, however, had a different opinion. My God, will you turn this fucking shit off, he said. My mom gasped, yelling at my dad for swearing in front of us and protesting that she liked the song. My dad, however, was having none of it. He then turned around to us, ages 8, 7, and 5, not stopping to stop the car, and said, You want the world to change? Go and change it for yourself. Needless to say, the car ride was pretty quiet after that. I still don't know what the fuck my dad was tweaking out about in that instance, but in any case, it sticks out as one of the most defining and funniest moments of my childhood. It was only until I read the aforementioned King Manson that I realized it was also incredibly true. In his book on hope, Manson eventually ends up concluding with his typically unpolitically correct and unpopular conclusion. Hope fucking sucks. The only way to avoid the trappings of hope, to avoid our own Great Depression, is to abandon it. Leave it aside. Hope for nothing. Don't wait on the world to change. Go out and make it better. Create your own happiness. Make your world around you a little brighter. And a little better. We live in a selfish world. There are a lot of things in the world, but there are very few things that are tailored directly to you and your happiness. The abundant, mindset, the abundant mindset people have it half right. To make the most out of yourself, you need to seize your own happiness. Being constructively selfish isn't selfish at all. The selfish thing would be to not take it for yourself. Our Great Depression and cultural malaise permeates everything we do in society. So many things are so good, yet so many seem to miss the boat on this wonderful time. With the influx of noise and other factors, our society can seem to be hopeless, an unparalleled mess of meaninglessness and sadness. However, when we begin to see where the unhappiness comes from, we begin to see that it is merely our mind saying that we should be more grateful for what we currently have, and less angry and resentful about what we don't. Don't hope for anything. Don't think you're entitled to happiness. You're not going to get either. The only thing you can get about is the one thing you control, you and your attitude about everything else. The data's in. It's only up to you now to see what that data for what it is, the sign of either two things. First, you shouldn't try to be happy. And second, that anyone who tries is missing the point entirely. So on that very happy note, I hope you guys have a great day. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Again, you know, at RealSamLax on Instagram. Uh, hit me up on the blog. My email sam at don'treadthisblog.com. Keep listening to the podcast, please. I love you guys. Um, and Read the blog, go about your life, fuck happiness, all this other stuff. I guess not fuck happiness. I don't know. But open your mind on the day. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the leaner roll, you know what's to happen. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit, and I think you well. How can I make my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?